Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. With that as a segue, as a preparatory statement before Matthew chapter 19. We come to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. And we talked this morning about the issue of marriage. As we've walked through Matthew's gospel account, we've said many times that Jesus, having been rejected by national Israel, he starts to turn now to his disciples and starts to prepare them, to train them, to give them the tools they will need to continue his ministry after he has died, rose again, and ascended to the Father. And he comes today to the issue of marriage. Now, it is put before him, but he takes the opportunity to teach them. Now, there's a lot of confusion today. I probably don't need to tell you, but a lot of confusion today about marriage, about its importance and significance, its exclusivity and accountability, its permanence and purpose. The culture we live in today oftentimes treats marriage as something to play with like a board game. You enjoy it for a while, but when it gets broken or damaged, you can throw it out, or you can replace it if the novelty wears off. Or marriage is treated as something that we can ignore, kind of like an old war monument that means something, it stands for something significant, but the amount of people still living that really remember is passing away, and so now it's kind of just an archaic statue that's not really all that important. It's something to ignore, to, to walk by without thinking about. Or marriage today is thought of something as a past, something to be exterminated. It is an oppressive invention of primitive generations past, and we need to do away with it for the good of the culture. There's no, there's no doubt that our culture, the world we live in, is very confused when it comes to marriage. But the church should not be. The people of God should not be confused. It's one thing for those who reject God or redefine God to reject or redefine marriage. It's altogether another thing for those who serve God, who belong to God, who believe in God, to do the same. We want to avoid that. We want to avoid that entirely. And, and so we come today talking about this idea of marriage, and we know that we're talking about it in a world that is very confused and misguided when we think about this institution. But God's people should be thinking very clearly about marriage. And this is true whether we're married or not, whether we want to be married or we're uninterested, whether we've had good experiences in marriage or bad experiences in marriage, it really doesn't matter. As God's people, we should be thinking rightly about this institution. And that's the goal this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 19. As the world around us preaches erroneous messages about it, we are going to remind ourselves of the Messiah's view of marriage. What did Jesus think about marriage? And we are going to strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to align our thoughts with his thoughts. So we come to this text, and, and Jesus provides his view of marriage in the midst of another confrontation with Israel's leaders. Yet again, here he goes. He finds himself in a fight with Israel's leaders, and we see that in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 19. Let me read the text for us, and then we will get into some of the details. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, before we get into the Messiah's view of marriage, that which we as God's people are going to strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to conform our thinking to, I want to first notice in this text two mistaken views of marriage that are found in this passage. There's two mistakes, and really in some ways you can see God's view of marriage in verses 4, 5, and 6, and around that are all these mistakes that we will notice now. The first mistake I want to point out will label this Pharisaic frivolity. Pharisaic frivolity. As we saw, the chapter begins with a bit of a stark contrast. In verses 1 and 2, you notice Jesus is out doing what Jesus has been doing. Crowds are following him, and he's showing his compassion and his power by healing them. And it's in that beautiful context that the religious sharks start circling. They see the crowd. They see his good works. They see his ministry. And here come the Pharisees. And Matthew here is explicit in their intention. They come testing him. That verb is also used in chapter 4, verse 1, where it's, the, it's Satan himself who comes testing Jesus in the wilderness. They come testing him. See that? It's, it's malicious. They're wanting to publicly expose Jesus. The crowd is there. They want to publicly expose Jesus as a law-breaking, God-hating fraud who certainly cannot be the Messiah they're expecting. He just can't be. We're waiting for a Messiah. It's not him, I'll tell you that much. And we're going to show you by causing him to trip up in front of all of y'all. So that's what they do. They're coming out, getting him. And, and they use the issue of divorce as a tool of entrapment. In verse 3, it says they come and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, if you remember, and I don't expect you to, but back a number of months in our series, back when we went through the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus made his view on this issue very, very clear. He's been public on this view. He's already expressed what he thinks about this issue. And yet here they come again saying, no, we want to hear it again. Tell us, what do you think about this issue? Is it lawful? Tell us again. And we'd say, why? He's already been public. He's already on the record with this issue. Why would they do this? Well, if we think what's happened between chapter 5 and here in chapter 19, there are a number of things. One of them, though, is John the Baptist. 
You think of John the Baptist in chapter 14. He was arrested and eventually executed. Why? Because he called out Herod for Herod's erroneous marriage practices. He said, that's wrong. He's arrested and executed. And so maybe here the Pharisees are thinking, ooh, the political tensions are on the rise. Let's get him to say it again out loud. Let's get him to incriminate himself, and maybe he will meet the same end as his cousin and forerunner, John. See, they're, they're sneaky. They know what they're about. They know what they're trying to do. And we should also add to that that at this time in the first century in Israel, there were two main rabbinical schools of thought when it came to the issue of divorce. One school taught that for whatever reason, a man could send his wife away. She looked at him funny, whatever the case may be, send her away. That is fine. The other school of thought was more conservative. It said, no, there has to be adultery. There has to be sexual promiscuity. And then it is allowed. And these are two big popular schools of thought. And so again, remember, Jesus is here healing the crowds. The crowds are around him. Certainly some in the crowd held to both positions. And the Pharisees can get Jesus to voice his. Well, he's going to isolate half his audience, right? Very sneaky. It's like if you're at a party with a bunch of people and you start bringing up politics or gun laws or whatever the case may be. You know, it's like part in the sea. You're going to make friends and you're going to make enemies. And here, these shrewd Pharisees, they know what they're about. Jesus is growing in popularity. He's got a crowd around him. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? Throw the grenade into the crowd and see what happens. See, they're trying to trap him. So this question they come after him with in verse 3, it is loaded, not with curiosity. It's not a legitimate question, but it is loaded with treachery. It's loaded with it. And after Jesus responds, as we read he did, and we'll come back to it in a moment, they come after him again in verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And here the Pharisees are reaching back into Deuteronomy chapter 24. A text, if we were to go back and read it, we would see it's a text in which Moses, inspired by God, he outlines the acceptable process of divorce and remarriage for Israel in a way that accounts for sin while protecting the woman from being mistreated. It's a fascinating four verses of text. But they're reaching back and pulling that forward. And the Pharisees, though, what they're doing, they have taken the God-provided exception and turned it into the expectation. That's what they've done. Divorce, while allowed by God for certain circumstances, had become in the first century as easy as ordering a pizza today. Just send them away. Not a big deal. Just trade up. It doesn't really matter. Just send her away. What did they say? For any reason at all. And they said, Moses commanded it after all, right? Just, just do it. It's not a big deal. And, and Jesus points out their frivolity here, this Pharisaic frivolity in verses 8 and 9. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Again, the Pharisees here had taken a God-provided exception, necessitated because of sin, and turned it into the expectation, ignoring the ideal that God had revealed. They had, they had totally ignored, this is how God made it. And they say, we get that, but we're more interested in the exception. We're more interested in that. It was this Pharisaic frivolity. Think for a moment, just as a parallel of this, of corporate worship over the last couple of years. Because of the brokenness of our world, viruses, etc., because of that, we had to use different ways of connecting right, over the time. 
using Zoom and live stream and YouTube. And, and we would say that God provided those. What a gracious thing that is. And he provided that for us so that we can continue to connect in less than ideal ways in a less than ideal time. God allowed us to have that so that we could have some semblance of fellowship, even though there was exceptional times afoot. But what happens if those exceptions, those provisions God made for us become the norm? That's problematic. When they become the norm, when we settle for the exception rather than the ideal, that's what we want to stay away from. Because when we, when we settle for the exception rather than the norm, what it does, it, first off, it harms us. Because we no longer have access to the idea. We're settling for a shadow of what is supposed to be. So it harms us. I would say it also belittles the God-ordained ideal. Because we're saying, well, we don't really need the ideal anymore. We don't actually need to gather because we have this exception. We have this tool now. We don't have to go back to what was. And then on top of that, I think it insults the one who provided the exception. Exceptional times. Because of brokenness in the world, he says, here, endure. Here's what you have to endure. But shame on us if we, if we get comfortable with the exception and make it the norm. And the Pharisees, back in Matthew 19, to their own harm, they had latched on to the exception God had granted because of sinfulness, and they had frivolously made it the norm. Divorce for any reason at all, no big deal. Translation, marriage is no big deal, right? If you can get rid of it so quickly without a second thought, then it really wasn't a big deal to begin with. This is this Pharisaic frivolity that Jesus can detect. They come to trap him, but Jesus sees that they're exposing really what they think of the institution. Our culture today would get along fine with these Pharisees on this point, wouldn't they? Yeah. Marriage? It's no big deal. No big deal. Ending a marriage? No big deal. No longer satisfied? Try a new one. Maybe you've heard, we loving each other enough that we don't need a piece of paper to tell us, to prove to us that we love one another. It's, it's frivolity. Let's call it what it is. It's frivolity on something God holds in such high esteem. That's the culture. But God's people, I want to, again, come back to this over and over again. God's people should think differently than the world we live in. We acknowledge that, that God has graciously provided ways to end a marriage because of sin, but we refuse to be frivolous about something that he takes so seriously. This is a mistake. It's a mistake that we see in this text. Now, the second mistake regarding marriage in this passage is near the conclusion. And we'll call it potential idolatry. We've seen this Pharisaic frivolity. Now, let's look at this potential idolatry. After listening to the back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus, the disciples, they have come to a conclusion in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. I think if, the, if, the, if marriage is that important and, and divorce is that serious and reserved for something so particular, then it's probably just better to stay away from it. It seems more complicated. It seems more intense than, than maybe we're cut out for. So maybe we'll just stay single. We'll stay celibate. And Jesus responds. He says, well, that's an option, but, but be careful because it's not for everyone. Verse 11 and 12. He said to them, not all men can accept this statement but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept this. Let him accept it. Now Jesus here, he uses eunuchs as the extreme example of singleness and celibacy. Men who had 
been castrated for whatever reason. He props him up as the extreme example. There are some, he says, to whom it has been given the ability to live this way by God. It's a gift that God gives to some individuals. Now, some people may say, I want to give that gift back. <laughs> Can I return? Is there a return policy on this gift? But he's saying that that is clearly a gift. He says it several times. To those to whom it has been given. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. We may think of Jesus himself. He was single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, was he not? We think of the Apostle Paul, who was pretty adamant with his singleness, that it was a good thing, wasn't it? We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 7, Paul writes this, he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." So it seems like Jesus and Paul, they propped up this singleness, this celibacy unto service as a great thing, as a wonderful thing. They're not denigrating marriage, but they're saying this is a legitimate other option. It's a gift to remain single. But Jesus is quick to say it's not for everyone. They are the gifted exception. Those able to commit themselves fully to the Lord's work, we'll say undistracted by marriage. They're all in. They can serve the Lord in a special way. Now, what are the mistakes here? Because we said there's mistakes. There's this mistake of Pharisaic frivolity in the first half. What about here? Well, there's some potential idolatry here, as we said. There's potential idolatry. First, as we look at this text more closely, we see that there's potentially the idol of self. The idol of self. It's the mistake of thinking that, that marriage is all about me. That marriage is all about my needs and my preference. I think that was likely part of why the disciples said what they said. So let me get this straight. You're telling me, Jesus, that no matter what happens in my marriage, apart from a certain sin, you're telling me I can't just send her away? Is that, am I getting this right? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Yes, that's what I'm saying. What if I grow bored? No, no, you can't just send her away for that. What if attraction fades? What if we, quote unquote, grow apart? Is that, is that legitimate? You're saying I have to stay married? It seems like a trap to me. You know, it seems like a trap. It seems, it seems suffocating, he's saying. So maybe it's better just not to marry. This seems, this seems too much. Maybe it's better just to stay single, and then I don't have to worry about it. And there's this idolatry of self that's woven in here, the mistake of thinking marriage is all about us. And I'll be honest, this was me when I was first married. And if Patricia was here, she'd yell amen at this point. This was 100% me. Call it immaturity, call it ignorance, whatever the case may be. I, this is looking back, when I entered marriage, I thought that getting a wife was like getting another appendage on a pre-existing life. She was just going to come alongside my life and kind of fit in where it was convenient. That was the way I pursued and thought about marriage. That is a picture of the idolatry of self. A distortion of the ideal. And it is a huge, huge mistake. The idolatry of self is potential idolatry. And I think the disciples were trying to wrestle with that here. Now, another potential idol is the idol of marriage itself. Ooh, that seems odd. But marriage itself can become an idol. Remember, in this passage, Jesus is presenting what marriage ideally looks like. What he's not presenting is that the ideal of human existence is marriage. Those two things are very different. When we talk about marriage, there is an ideal that God sets up. But when we talk about humanity as a whole, we're not saying that the ideal for all humanity is that you must be married. Jesus isn't saying that. He just talked about singleness being a blessing. 
He just said that there is great productivity and fulfillment and purpose in singleness. And yet sometimes we can make the mistake of communicating that people are less than whole without a spouse. And Jesus does not teach that. Sometimes we're especially guilty of that in the church, where we say, you really want to end up getting married. That's when you really know who you are and become a whole person. Jesus would totally disagree. And that is the opinion that ultimately matters. I think we would agree with Again, I think back to when Patricia and I met. We met on a seminary campus, and on this campus, there were two student housing buildings that kind of mirrored each other. One was for singles, and one was for marrieds. And we started off in the single building. And I remember then, even in the single building, in the common rooms, when we fellowship with one another, there was this way that the singles talked about the married building. You know what they called it? The promised land. <laughs> yeah. The promised land. They say, oh, one day we will get, oh, in the great by and by, we will get to the promised land. <laughs> well, Patricia, and I got to the promised land. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and some of that is legitimate. Longing to have a partner to be married. Some of it can be the idol of marriage. That I am not fit for ministry. I'm not fit to serve the Lord. I'm not fit totally as a human being unless... I have a spouse. Again, Jesus here says a legitimate option is singleness. Now, let me just say something. I'm so glad this isn't recorded because it would come back to me. Oh, wait, it is recorded. <laughs> if you are unmarried, I would submit that in a way, you have the gift of singleness at this moment. That you have been given a flexibility that others who are not married, or who are married, don't have. Now, again, you may be like, where is the return receipt? Where is the gift receipt? I want to give this back. That might be legitimate. You may long to be married. But at the same time, you are in a stage of life where God has given you that, and you can use it to serve him. What does he say here? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is up to you. Marriage is a gift, but so is singleness. And if the Lord blesses you with marriage, praise the Lord. If, if he doesn't, praise the Lord. The end point is the same. So again, it's a mistake to treat marriage with the frivolity of the Pharisees, but it's also a mistake to use it as a target or a cause for idolatry, whether it's the idol of self or the idol of marriage itself. And all of these are on display in this, this text, and they surround what then Jesus says about the Messiah's view of marriage, which we find in verses 4, 5, and 6. Again, how do we avoid these mistakes? By looking and seeing marriage as Christ himself sees marriage. This won't be news to almost any of us in here, what Jesus says here, but it's a good reminder. As the world around us is increasingly confused about what marriage is, it's good for the church to be reminded of what God says it is, just to stay strong. And, and in this little section in verses 4, 5, and 6, Jesus, he, he points out what the ideal is. In marriage, this is what the goal is, and he says it's rooted in four things. The first in verse 4 is that the ideal, God's revealed ideal in marriage, is rooted in its original template. Verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? When he says, have you not read, it means that what was written is prescriptive and definitive. He's reaching back and says, have you not paid attention to what was written? You should. It still applies today, and it still applies for us today in the 21st century also. Have you not read? God created marriage in the beginning, and that original 
forms the template going forward. It has never changed or evolved no matter how much sin and confusion floods our world. Male, singular, and female, singular. Not one man and three women, not two men, not one woman and an animal, not one man and a child, not one man, one woman, and a tree. Nothing like that is one man, singular, one female, singular. As the Pharisees, they try and test Jesus in this text, revealing their confusion and their capitulation to what the ideal was. Jesus, I love this, he takes them right back to the original template. They come in trying to trap him, and he sidesteps and goes right to the original. You've confused it. You are so focused on the exception, you have lost sight of the ideal. Have you not read what God has made clear? Our world is confused and and let's call it what it is, prideful enough to think that we can redefine and recreate that which God has created. I mean, there's a lot of words for that, but hubris has to be at the top of the list. That is hugely arrogant. God has created, God has spoken, God has said these things, and we say, well, we're going to recreate, we are going to redefine. But then again, we should stop and say that the world doesn't know better. The world doesn't have the mind of Christ. The world is not regenerate. The world is unanchored from an authority in the creator. Uh, They're doing what the world does. That's actually to be expected. But we know better as God's people. At least we should. We know better. God's people must hold the line defending and celebrating that original template. We have to. Now second, not only is this God's revealed ideal rooted in the original template, it's also rooted in relational uniqueness. Verse 5 Jesus continues and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In marriage, there is a leaving and a joining. In the old school language, a leaving and a cleaving. We leave one and cleave to the next. In marriage, that new relationship becomes preeminent. While my parents were once the primary relationship in my life, when I married Patricia, that changed. They got demoted. They got demoted. They are no longer the primary relationship in my life. I honor and love them, but I am not joined to them. I have left them. I have left them. There is a uniqueness in the relationship of marriage. And there are many marriages today outside the church, but also inside, where the uniqueness of that relationship is downplayed or ignored or obscured. Listen, friendships are good. That's a great thing. Children are good. Parents are good. In-laws are good. (laughs) Relationships are good, brothers and sisters. They are good things, but when they replace, challenge, or supplant the marriage relationship, that is not good. It is not good for when children come along for them to supplant my relationship with my spouse. I did not leave my parents for my kids. I left them for her. It is a unique relationship that is not challenged by the child-parent relationship at all. God willing, they will leave. God willing, please, Lord, may they leave. No, I'm kidding again. But you know, uh, my wife will not, though. That is a unique relationship. There's a relational uniqueness to marriage that is to be found nowhere else. This is the ideal. This is what we are to protect and strive for and pray for. And God's people need to know this and celebrate this. Now, thirdly, we keep reading in Jesus' description. And we see that God's revealed ideal in marriage is rooted in its physical oneness. And certainly this is connected to the uniqueness of that relationship. But continuing on in verse 5. And the two shall become one flesh. 
Verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. There is a physical intimacy in marriage reserved for that relationship, not before and not supplanted or supplemented during, is reserved for that relationship. And this goes beyond just physical intimacy. It becomes something so much more. There's a joining of two people so much so that they become something together they weren't apart. It's a miracle. And I I lack the words to describe what that is, but he says they become one flesh. They don't cease being individuals, but together they create something new. And this is why when divorce happens, and remember, God made provision for it, but when it happens, it is traumatic because it is a tearing of this one flesh. And again, it goes back to just shaking our heads at how frivolously it was treated by the Pharisees. If it is what is described in Genesis, say, oh, it doesn't matter, just trade, it's not a big deal. No, it's a tearing of this one-fleshed relationship. Our culture has cheapened this physical oneness. Again, I don't need to tell you this, but has cheapened this physical oneness to the level of mere transaction or leisure activity or a form of exercise. To quote our Lord in a different context, he says, they know not what they do. They don't know what they do. But we as God's people, we know what we do. At least we should. We need to honor that physical oneness that is rooted at the beginning of this is the ideal, God's revealed ideal for marriage. Now finally, Jesus reminds us that God's revealed ideal in marriage is rooted in its divine ordination. End of verse six. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together. God joins man and woman. God brings them together. God applies the divine gorilla glue to this relationship. God makes them one flesh. God determines the relational uniqueness. Marriage is a divine ordination. It's not something we just enter into like a a silly contract, like it's no big deal again. That's frivolity. God has overseen this process and brought them together. Therefore, let no man, woman, child, boy, girl, person, whatever, let no one separate what God has joined together. It almost goes without saying. I mean, who do we think we are to play with something God has imagined, created, joins, and celebrates? We want to be cautious. This is the revealed ideal for marriage that the Messiah views it as. You see, while the Pharisees, they come and they try to trap Jesus using the issue of divorce to embarrass him and to incriminate him, to lose him followers, what they actually end up doing is revealing their own worldly view of the institution. They reveal it for everyone to see. And so Jesus blows right by their question and lays down a picture of God's revealed ideal. You've missed it, guys. He says, you've missed it. You've taken your eyes off of the precious gem God created and you've settled for something that was given as a replacement and you've made it the norm. He says, don't do that. And this revealed ideal, it's not something that obviously will always be seen and always be celebrated. We still live in a sinful world full of sinful people, even within the church. But at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that it is what it is. And you may be here today, you may be married, unmarried, previously married, whatever the case may be. You may have grown up in a home where just an awful, awful example of marriage. And you're still reeling from that picture and you can't get over it. That, That is legitimate and we need to deal with that. But at the same time, none of our experiences change the fact that it, the ideal is what it is. It's still there. It's still here in black and white. And it has been since the beginning. It's rooted in the original template, a relationship like no other, characterized by physical oneness and resting under divine ordination. That is the ideal. That's what God said was good. As God's people, we need to say, 
that's good. That's good. Even if I've never experienced it, maybe I want to experience it, but, but it's still the good. It's still the good. The temptation to, to redefine marriage in light of cultural opinions is very, very strong. Very strong. Same-sex marriages, polyamory, polygamy, no-fault divorce, never fully leaving father and mother, very, very common. Casual sexual activity before and during marriage. But not only these things, also the general indifference in our culture about marriage. The general indifference, disenchantment, degradation. It's, it's just in the water. It's everywhere. But at the same time, it shouldn't be in the church. We should strive by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, conform our minds to think about marriage the way that you think about marriage. That's what we want. And again, I want to encourage you, whatever your marital status and whatever your experience with marriage, if you are a child of God, you need to ask him to help you to think what God thinks about marriage. That is our goal today. In spite of all the voices out there, in spite of all the voices maybe in our home, in spite of our experiences, in spite of the voices in here, in my heart rising up, God, help me. I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to think about this thing the way you think about marriage. That's what I want to do. And we as a church need to do that. Because the cultural winds are not blowing softer these days. They're increasing to a gale force. We need to know what it is and stand strong for it. So what does it mean to think what God thinks about marriage? Well, I came up with a, a few things for us to think about. It means first rejecting the perversions. Rejecting the perversions. Um, as subtle or as explicit as they are, and we need to reject those perversions. Uh, creatures do not have the right to redefine what God has created and ordained. We do not have the right to call something bad what God has called good. We don't have that right. That's hubris. It's arrogance. We don't have that right. And the perversions are myriad, and while our world celebrates them, God's people must reject them. Not with combativeness or condescension, but with conviction. Say, uh, we don't stand for that. We know what it's supposed to be, and we're going to stand on that. We need to reject the perversions. We need to help our kids reject the perversions, to identify them, to see them in media, to see them everywhere, and to be able to say they are what they are. They are perversions of what God has said is the ideal. We need to reject those. That's what God thinks about marriage. That's how we think about marriage the way God does. Second, we need to protect the ideal. We've kind of been talking about this all morning, but we need to protect the ideal. Not only reject the perversions, but protect the ideal and celebrate the ideal. What the Messiah describes in this text here. We teach it to our kids and our grandkids. We speak highly of the ideal. That goes a long way. If we have a general ethos in a church or in a home where we speak highly of the ideal, even if we don't experience it all the time, we still speak highly of it because it's valuable, because God says it's valuable. We strive for the ideal. We, we celebrate models of the ideal. I won't embarrass anyone in this church family by name today, but I will embarrass you maybe later. In my tenure here, I've gotten to know a lot of you well enough to know that there are models of marriage represented in this church. They wouldn't say that they're perfect, but they are certainly striving toward and celebrating this ideal. They're in our midst. We want to celebrate those. We want to come alongside those. Maybe silently come alongside and, listen, I know you're not perfect, but we've seen things in you and your spouse that we'd like to learn from. Can we just be around you? We want to learn from you. We want to celebrate with you. We need to do that as a church. We need to pray for the ideal. We need to come alongside couples and, and help them move toward the ideal. Not only do we reject the perversions of marriage, but we also protect the ideal God has given, even if it's hard to find. We protect it. This is what it means to think what God thinks about marriage. And finally, this means respecting the exceptions to the ideal. Respecting the exceptions to the ideal. God has provided exceptions because of sin. 
We dare not shame brothers and sisters who have prayerfully endured or are prayerfully enduring. We respect that exception. God has also provided exceptions unto service in, single, in singleness. Respect that. You know, encourage brothers and sisters in those ways. Cheer them on. To think what God thinks about marriage means respecting the exceptions that he himself has provided. Not as lesser realities, but instead as marriage itself is, as a trophy of God's grace. This is our task as God's people, to think about marriage the way God thinks about marriage in a culture that thinks anything but but again, that's expected. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They, they are not anchored to truth. They are doing what they will do. We worry about our own business in the church, in our homes. We encourage one another, say, in spite of my experience, in spite of what I see around me, I know what God says is the ideal. I'm going to strive for that. I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to encourage one another toward that. And I'm not going to fall for the perversions out there. It's dishonoring the Lord. And I'm not going to make the exceptions the norm like the, the Pharisees did. I don't want to be frivolous. I don't want to be an idolater either. I want to cheer on and celebrate what God has made, which is good. And that, brothers and sisters, will make this church very unique if we stand on what God has said about this marriage institution. I don't need to tell you again that there are churches across North America capitulating on this issue. Capitulating. And we oftentimes think, well, be more like the world to win the world. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? That never, ever, 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 ever works. It does not work. As wonderfully motivated as it may be, we're going after the world to get the world. We're going to be more like them. All that does is when the world comes to the end of itself and sees the error of their ways and the folly of their worldview and they look over for something different. God, give us something different if you're real. They look over to the church and they just see a less fun version of themselves. No one is coming to that. No, as the church in marriage and in everything else, as the world careens off the cliff as it is supposed to do, as it will do, and eventually when they come to the end of themselves and they look for help, they look across and they see a church that is drastically different than they are and say, huh, maybe that has some answers. I don't want just a sanctified version of what I've experienced. I want something totally different. And this is one way where we can stand our ground, one way where we can train ourselves to have the mind of Christ. God, help us think like you think about marriage and about everything else. Let's ask him to help us do that now as we close. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.